0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, hour two of our broadcast now getting underway. I have a very special guest I want you to meet. His name is Cliff Maloney. He is the president of Young Americans for Liberty. And uh, Cliff, it's great to have you on the show. We've crossed paths before, but it was a long time ago on a podcast far, far away with uh, with our good friend Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back. I appreciate you having me here.
0: So, and, and, and we, we have, uh, we've kind of uh, run into one another, or at least we, we've uh, been ships that pass in the night at, at uh, a couple of different things taking place uh, among freedom-minded people, FeeCon a couple of years ago in Atlanta. But for people who aren't familiar with uh, who you are or what Young Americans for Liberty is about, let's start with you. Tell us who you are and what makes you tick, and then we'll talk a little bit about your organization.
1: Yeah, sure. name is Cliff Maloney. And uh, I'm a 28-year-old who believes in freedom, liberty, and the Constitution. And uh, the organization I run is a group called Young Americans for Liberty. Now, I'll tell you, Brian, it's been uh, it's been kind of an interesting journey as an organization because, you know, we've existed kind of out of the Ron Paul days. Uh, back in 2008, after he ran, they, they kind of started Young Americans for Liberty out of that. And when I took over... Uh, in 2016, uh, I had worked for Rand Paul when he ran for president. I was his national youth director. And when, uh, when he dropped out, you know, we were continuing to do outreach on campus when I came to YAL. But one of the major shifts we made in 2018 was we kind of doubled down on our mission of not just going out and identifying students, not just educating them on the principles of liberty and the Constitution, and not just training them, but how do we mobilize them? How do we take all this energy and go out and really make an impact in the community. And so in 2018, we launched this uh, program called Operation Went at the Door, where we take all this energy and these young people who are excited about the ideas, I promise you. They're out there on college campuses. you just got to find them. Uh, you got to look for them because they're, they're not getting that message in the classroom. And what we do with them is we take them out and we identify candidates that are aligned with the principles of civil liberties, the Constitution, fiscal conservatism, and a foreign policy of peace. To be frank, we find these candidates. We go out and we do what we call door knocking deployments. So we try to really move the needle, mobilize voters, get them excited. And we'll put students on the ground for practically an entire month to try to, to try to uh, drive those results. And uh, just the top line numbers uh, for you and your audience. You know, we've done 107 races across the country. We've gotten 56 what we call liberty legislators elected. And we've done that by knocking over 1.5 million doors so far in our program. Um, so it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, obviously, in 2020, you know, dealing with this virus right now, uh, we'll make some adjustments to uh, make phone calls, send some targeted texts, and uh, even just some mail to associate with absentee ballots. But what we're trying to do here is we're trying to build a bench across the country of just not young people on campuses, that are excited, but kind of a minor leagues of the Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, Liberty type folks in state legislatures. Here's the question to the entire audience: If we can elect 250 of these Rand Paul, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey types at the local level, people that really believe in the cause of liberty, if you elect 250 of them, that is five percent of all the state legislative seats in the country. That, to me. Where you actually start to see some impact and start to change the conversation, that's what we're working towards.
0: Cliff, you are speaking my language and and I'm thrilled to hear about the success that you guys have had so far. i want to I want go back just a little bit here and ask you the the foundational principles to elect individuals like you're talking about, freedom minded, liberty minded, principled um, legislators. What are some of the, the sources that you draw upon or the, the, those who go out there and do this work, these members of Young Americans for Liberty, where do they get the basis of their understanding so that they can, can go out there and, and share light?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. So the first thing that we – because people ask me this all the time. They say, you know, look, it's tough because every issue has some nuance and there's conversations. And let me let me start at the end, which is how we endorse our candidates, and work that back towards, you know, what are we giving to our students? What are we doing to introduce people to the ideas? And the reason I want to start at the end is because a lot of people ask that question right away: of, well, do your candidates stay principled? Right? You work hard, you get somebody elected. Do they do they you know get bitten? Are they a zombie? And all of a sudden they're gone and they're they're with the establishment and the special interest? So we actually have a a thirty question survey where you can look, if you go to yaliberty.door you can find our survey there. You can see exactly how we vet our candidates. And that's important because it's not just that we get them to answer the questions. We can hold them accountable to those results, right? They're going on the record. And when I say there's 30 questions, Brian, I mean, there are, you know, we're, we're talking about every single issue you can possibly think of, because I'm not just looking to make a political move. I'm looking to build something philosophically. And so if you want to do that, you have to get to the root of what these politicians believe. Now, a newsflash for your whole audience. Most politicians don't believe anything. And I don't mean that they're bad people. I just mean they don't have a a philosophical backing. There's no, there's no principles or ideas or solutions, you know, that are deeper than just the, the topic for the day. That's it. You know, they're kind of looking at polls and where the interests are of the people and and what's the easiest thing to say. They're not looking at, you know, hey, what's the proper role of government? So we have those conversations with our legislators and really work to make sure that's understood on the political side. On the philosophical side, here's here's what I say to everybody. On any issue... Any issue when it comes to the role of government, okay? There are different spots that we are at in terms of, you know, looking at oh, is this something that we agree with, or is it heading in the wrong direction, or heading in the right direction? And I always tell people on any decision that the government is going to make, you have two options: you move towards freedom, or you move towards tyranny. Right? You can you can say it a million different ways. You can say you move towards liberty, or you move towards authority. Right? There's a scale. You're moving in one direction, and so my argument. When I work with our activists and when we're doing teachings and we're training folks, is you always want to figure out how do we advocate so we're effectively moving towards freedom and away from tyranny. And I think the conversation that most students don't get in the classroom, the conversation that most students aren't hearing, is that the answer to every single problem, it's not always government. But that's what they learn. That's the curriculum of higher ed currently. And I, once again, I'm not saying that there are some you know, powers that be that are, that are pushing this. I'm just saying, look, that's what these professors have been taught. They're kind of indoctrinated and inundated with this idea that anytime you have a problem in society, look to government. And so when we message on campus, yes, we're going to bring different speakers out, and we're going to try to meet people where they're at and talk about ideas they care about and show them why liberty and the Constitution and restraining government and empowering individuals is the solution. But the thing is, they're not getting that message in the classroom. So when we appear on campus and we do our campus activism events, where we'll build structures on campus, we'll engage students, and we did over 3,000 of these campus activism events in the past school year. And when we do that, what's happening is students, they're dying for a different message. They're hungry to hear that it's not all doom and gloom and that you have to be a victim and put all of your trust in government. And I always tell people, that's what gives me hope. When I work with young people, you know, you you, you get to see the real side of people. Most people don't think the government should take 25 cents of every dollar you make, meaning they should take less, not more. (laughs) Most people don't think the government should be reading your emails or have access to your bank statements. Most people don't think we should have troops in 120-plus countries around the world. That's what gives me hope, is the gut reaction of people is with us. We just have to work to tap into that. Figure out where they are and show them that our ideas are the best solutions.
0: Well, I see great wisdom in your approach in that uh, this is a long game in the sense that uh, the young people uh, who who get it, the ones who don't have to be re-taught against or re-educated from false ideas that they may have been raised with, um, are, are going to have a fighting chance in the days ahead. Now, I shamelessly dropped, you know, the name of, uh, of FECON and the Foundation for Economic Education. And, and I believe that's that's where I, I heard you speak a couple of years ago. I get hope, too. When I see the young people, um, I know there's a lot of intergenerational uh, uh, friction these days, you know, between the... the snowflakes and everybody else but uh, organizations like yours, young Americans for Liberty uh, you guys are living proof that there are young people who not only get it but who are very capable of the heavy lifting that is required.
1: yeah, and here's the best part. I got to be careful how I say this because I think it it probably benefits us to act like there is this huge fight on campus. You've got two experiences on the cam- uh, college campus you know if you look at American college campuses, there are two avenues to reach people with ideas okay the first is in the classroom and the second is the on-campus experience so the in the classroom is more the institution itself the curriculum classes you're taking what you're learning The on-campus experience is people engaging with other people because colleges are supposed to be an area for open ideas and young minds are congregating and people are tossing frisbees and you know it has that activist feel right
0: Hold that thought, for, hold that thought for just a second, Cliff. We are up against our break. Cliff Maloney is my guest. He is the president of Young Americans for Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. My guest is Cliff Maloney. He is president of Young Americans for Liberty. He's also a regular guest and commentator on Fox News and PBS and Newsmax and Reason TV. And he writes a lot. Cliff, let's just say it. You are, you're a communicator for freedom and, and doing a fine job. As we went to the break, you were telling us about the different approaches that can be taken on campus. There's the classroom approach, and you were just starting to tell us about the on-campus approach. Could we pick up from there?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Brian. So you've got the classroom approach, the curriculum, the institution, and then you've got the on-campus approach. And the problem with that is the classroom approach, if you're a believer in freedom, I hate to tell you this, but you know, you're going to need a systemic change to be able to make an impact there. If anything, it's going in the other direction. Um, but that on-campus experience, the reason I was saying that I'm not as worried about some of the future, you know where we're going is we're the ones out there doing the work. You know, a lot of the, the, the more progressive or, 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 should I say, you know, liberal, not in the classical sense, but, you know, these folks that think government's answered all of our problems, they're not out and about because they can rely on the classroom. And so I, I say that to give your listeners hope that the competition out there, the freedom-loving, constitution-toting folks, they're the ones out there that are really doing the hard work. And it is. It's not sexy work. It's difficult reaching people, talking to them, even the work we do with Operation Win at the Door. But that's the power of it, is who's going to go out there and do that type of work? People that believe in something. And that's what the principles of the Constitution and the principles of liberty, that's what they're all about, individual empowerment. And so when people get excited and they get fired up, they want to go out and talk to other people. That's what we're trying to harness at Young Americans for Liberty.
0: Well, I I applaud your efforts, and I I assume that if people are supportive of those efforts, uh, they can visit your website and and, uh, most likely make a donation. Could you tell us what is your website?
1: YALIberty.org
0: Okay, easy enough. Now, I want to pick your brain, just because I know that you are a freedom-minded guy. I think you're a kindred spirit in in the sense that you understand uh, liberty doesn't maintain itself, It always requires caretaking. It requires people willing to to get in there and roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty and and perpetuate it for the the generations that will follow. We are facing an unprecedented. um, I I don't want to use the word assault, but uh, reduction in our liberties right now in response to the coronavirus crisis. What are your thoughts on the passing scene? Uh, What gives you hope? What causes concern for
1: you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing that anybody that wants to be an advocate and that really believes in free markets and believes in a free people is we really need to lead with solutions. So what I've said since day one is government's job is to give us information, to give us accurate information, as accurate as possible, because, you know, government has these resources. I mean, you know, call it a public good, call it whatever you want. I'm not here to debate that. But that, to me, is what government should be doing. is it should be giving us as much up-to-date, accurate information as possible and making strong recommendations. Notice I didn't say mandates, Brian. Strong recommendations to help us to be in the best health as possible. I think we should be leading as advocates by saying, yes, okay, based on these facts, we need to improve testing. We've known that since day one. We've got to test, test, test. And I think one of the things that is most frustrating to me is this second part, which is, We are at a point where governors are deciding whether you can leave your house. And I get that everyone wants to jump to say that, oh, it'll save lives. But what I'm struggling with is I understand that part. And if they think that so, so, you know, emphatically, then just make that recommendation. Tell people, hey, we think you have a chance to die. You do have a chance to die. Your chances to die go up at such a rate that you should stay in your home. I think that's a great conversation. Not a great conversation, but that's a that's a blunt statement and people can respect that. But my struggle right now is you have these governors who are literally deciding what businesses are essential, what businesses aren't essential. And here's the problem. You know, metro areas are very different from rural areas. Um, And I'm not even talking nationally. I'm talking each state. Right. There are different localities that have different circumstances. And this is why decentralized government is so important. Because we need to be making decisions in the pockets that we're in, in the areas that we're in. And when these governors make these blanket statements, you know, my dad is a landscaping business in Pennsylvania. You think he gets within 30 feet of anybody in one day when he's in grass? No. Oh, but, you know, government can't, when government puts out a statement, what's essential and what's not, you got to let people decide. And, and the, the, the other thing on this that I think is just insane is I think politicians are out of touch with how many people are going to go hungry. And what I mean by that is this. I think people can last a month, and I'd hope that everybody, you know, has family, friends, uh, local shelters, local charities and communities can come together and help people. But after you get past the month mark, something starts to happen, and that's this. If people are told they can't work, they're not going to be able to put food on the table. And I'm not making that up. Forty-five percent of Americans have zero dollars in savings, right? Forty-five percent. So I don't think politicians realize that number's that high. And I think the conversation that nobody wants to have is you have to weigh the economic, you know, downside of people when they can't work, they can't get access to basic essentials. If you can't get access to basic essentials, you're going to have civil unrest. But that conversation keeps getting cut off because, oh, I do want people to die. Eventually, this conversation is going to be forced to happen because when the civil unrest happens, people are going to say, "Wow, well, why didn't we see this coming? So it's a very nuanced nuanced situation. Obviously, it's unprecedented. Um, but I'm very disappointed that more people aren't standing up and saying, hey, let's talk about the ramifications of shutting down the business without saying we want people to die and how these you know, governors are kind of being tyrants. And I think the big test for the country – is going to be when it comes time to "quote unquote" reopen. Have we learned any lessons from this? Have we learned about what government's role in our lives and the power we give them? And I think elections will do the telling. I think this governor in Michigan—you know—does she does, does she have any political ramifications for these tyrannical things she's doing? The governor in Kentucky shutting down church drive-throughs. Right. Uh, that is what is going to fascinate me because I am nervous. I'm going to be very disappointed and people aren't going to push back. I hope I'm wrong.
0: I appreciate your take on that, Cliff, and and I I agree with your analysis. Uh, One of the concerns I have, too, is that the reason people are being as silent as they are right now in the face of, look, hey, government, there's an emergency. We're going to just tell you what to do, your rights. Well, they have to be suspended. If people really understood what their rights are, or as that matter, what legitimate government is supposed to be doing versus what it's actually doing, there's no way they would stand for that. I, I have to believe that silence is tied to a lack of knowledge generally among the populace.
1: Yeah, and I think it's not just a lack of it is. It's a lack of knowledge, but I actually think the one silver lining here is maybe this does get people to turn their head. Right? Maybe there's people that are always like, Oh, the government'll take care of us. Well look, once these twelve hundred hour checks go out. Uh, yeah, I, I think people are going to run out of money again. And then what happens? We write another check. So I, I think I think you're onto something there in that this could create a situation where we are able to finally have people having a conversation. And I'm not saying that, you know, you want something like this to happen, but sometimes things have to get bad, you know, for, for people to, to, to see or to open their eyes or to engage. Um, you know, you had the bailouts back after the financial crisis. And what was born from that? The Tea Party. Right. Now, it didn't last long you know, Once Republicans got in charge And spent all the money <laughs> But sometimes you need a moment Where you need an incident Where people have to kind of do a double check You know, they look and say Is this what I believe? Is this the right thing? And I think more than anything More than any other time in my life This is going to be a big moment For us to say What is the proper role of government? Because that's the question Every acti- Every activity we do If we can get people to ask that question, what is the role of government? That's a real conversation. That's not talking about partisan politics. That's not talking about Trump's hair or her emails, you know, like the 16 race. That is a real question. And you have that conversation. That is a very, very, very pivotal moment for the country if we can start asking that.
0: Okay. The organization is Young Americans for Liberty, YALIberty.org. Cliff Maloney, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Loving Liberty today. Loved it. You guys take care. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service, 801-331-8113. If I mention, uh, you know, heroes of liberty or heroes of freedom, I would bet there are a couple of names that come to mind. You know, some people would say, oh, Thomas Jefferson or, you know, maybe uh, Dr. Ron Paul or, I don't know, Ammon Bundy, Lavoie Finnicum. I There there are a lot of possibilities, but there's one name that I bet most people would not Associate with being a hero of freedom, and yet he very much is, or rather was, a hero of freedom. And that is Thomas Saz. I'm going to spell his last name because I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing it, but it's S-Z-A-S-Z. Thomas Saz. He was a Hungarian-American champion of freedom. He was actually a doctor. He was a psychiatrist. And today marks his uh, what would have been his 100th birthday, and the reason I'm sharing his name with you and, and sharing some information about him with you is because this guy had more impact on me than I would have thought. And it came; it goes back almost 10 years ago when I first came across an article that he had written about modern-day psychiatry. Well, what does psychiatry have to do with freedom? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Psychiatry, in case you didn't know, is a fairly recent invention. I mean, if you want to talk about you know the medical arts... You, you can go back a long, long ways to Hippocrates and, and to, uh, you know, people who were learning and practicing medicine right down from the time when they were putting leeches on people, you know, up to uh, open heart surgery. But psychiatry really didn't come into fashion until uh, roughly 300 years ago. And what's interesting about psychiatry is it became a branch of medicine that combined forces with the state. And it was Thomas Sass who really uh, expounded on this. And frankly, what he said made a whole lot of sense to me. Because he says, you know, you, you remember, um, think about the, the movie um, Beauty and the Beast. Okay. Belle and her father. Where Where is it that they want to lock up her father? In the lunatic asylum. Right. And that was where psychiatry would put people who were considered lunatics. But you know what else that became a convenient place for? people who were inconvenient or embarrassing to those who were in power at the moment. So maybe they were clinically nuts. You know, maybe they were insane. Maybe not. Maybe it was just someone they were saying was insane. And in order to keep them discredited, in order to keep them out of the public eye well, we lock them up in the insane asylum. And, and that takes care of that. Now, I'm not telling you, you, you have to believe everything, every word I'm saying here, but Come on, you can think of even more recent examples. The, the former Soviet Union was a great example of this. Um, I believe Mao's China was like this, too. People who didn't get with the program, people who did not dutifully fall into line with the party, were considered mentally ill. My son Robert brought me a copy of uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago today. I had shared with him a Solzhenitsyn quote yesterday, and he started looking him up online and was just like, wow, this guy had all kinds of cool things to say. And he did. He was amazing. And he was also locked away in the, the Soviet penal system, that the labor camps, because of something he had said in a letter to a colleague which was intercepted by one of Stalin's censors and then used to convict him of an Article 58 infraction or violation which is anything considered anti-Soviet activities. And so he was sent to the Gulag to get his mind straight. Where they starved him, they worked him nearly to death... Uh, He suffered exposure and freezing eventually. I think the reason he got out of there was because he had a massive tumor that had developed and they had to send him out to to get the medical help that he needed. But in the meantime, he wrote and and the things he wrote were so truthful that uh, it was just intolerable to those who were in power. So eventually they exiled him from the Soviet Union. They kicked him out and sent him on his way. That's what happens when psychiatry combines its forces with the state. And, and by the way, I'm not picking on psychiatrists, I'm not picking on psychologists when I tell you this, but there are disciplines of medicine, say neurology, that study the actual structures of the brain and the nervous system. It's something that's uh, scientifically quantifiable. Psychiatry and psychology deal with more intangible things, ideas, emotions, feelings, the id, and, and it's not to say that they can't do some good. I, I believe they can. But to the extent that they are tied to the state, they can also be a very large source of mischief. And this is something that Thomas Saz, as a trained psychiatrist, warned against. And actually, he wrote a great book called The Myth of Mental Illness. It was published back in 1961. In that book... He talked about the vast numbers of people wrongfully incarcerated incarcerated simply because officialdom did not approve of their views or even their peaceful behavior. And Dr. Thomas Saz battered the quacks. He battered the bureaucrats and the politicians courageously uh, season in and season out without pause, as James Bovard points out. And as he noted in the preface to the 50th anniversary edition of his book, Formerly When Church and State Were Allied people accepted theological justifications for state-sanctioned coercion, right? The Inquisition. Good example. Today, he said, when medicine and the state are allied, people accept therapeutic justifications for state-sanctioned coercion. This is how some 200 years ago, psychiatry became an arm of the coercive apparatus of the state. And this is why today all of medicine threatens to become transformed into personal therapy, or from personal therapy, rather, into political tyranny. Now, as James Bovard points out, Thomas Sass was not daunted by the fierce opposition by the psychiatry profession. As he wrote to him in a letter on his 85th birthday, the ancient Romans said, one eagle can put to rout 10,000 sparrows. There was no welcoming wind for your heresies, and yet you have been hammering them home since before I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Again, this is James Bovard writing to Dr. Thomas Sass. He also compliments Dr. Saz on the fact that he was one libertarian who did not cast half his principles overboard following 9-11. In fact, he says, I got the chance to know him while on the Saz Civil Liberties Award Committee. And by the way, Ron Paul Runt won that award in 2002, thanks in part to his heroic opposition to the pending Iraq war, as well as his pathbreaking opposition to the drug war. Tom Saz saw through a lot of hokum that other people missed. And as James Bovard says, he had a rare decency that should not be forgotten. Though he was a native Hungarian, his English was more graceful than the writing of at least 99% of Ivy League English professors. He wrote punchier, more penetrating epigrams than almost anyone else out there, commenting on modern life. And as he commented in that letter on Saz's 58th birthday, or 85th birthday, rather... All the effort you have put into carving your thought into epigrams and aphorisms should help your ideas thrive for many more years. So here are just a few of the favorite lines from Thomas Saz. quote, people dream of making the virtuous powerful so they can depend on them. Since they cannot do that, people choose to make the powerful virtuous, glorifying and becoming victimized by them. How about this one? Clear thinking requires courage rather than intelligence. Oh, if that wasn't one for our time, I don't know what is. Here's another one. Quote, The self is not something one finds. It is something one creates. Here's another one. The greatest analgesic, soporific, stimulant, tranquilizer, narcotic, and to even some extent, antibiotic, in short, the closest thing to a genuine panacea known to medical science, is work. Let's do a couple more here in the animal kingdom. The rule is eat or be eaten in the human kingdom. Define or be defined. Here's another people often say that this or that person has not yet found himself, but the self is not something that one finds. It is something one creates or men often treat others worse than they treat themselves, but they rarely treat anyone better it is the height of folly to expect consideration and decency from a person who mistreats himself. Or the stupid neither forgive or forget, the naive forgive and forget, the wise forgive but do not forget. All right, one last one. Punishment is now unfashionable because it creates moral distinctions among men, which to the democratic mind are odious. We prefer a meaningless collective guilt to a meaningful, individual responsibility. And there's a great link here. I'll have this in the show notes so you can check this out for yourself. But there's a terrific uh, piece that uh, James Bovard wrote back in 1986 that paralleled Saz's line of criticism of psychiatry. I mean, think about this to illustrate how it, how this has been. You've probably heard me refer to this once upon a time. If you needed someone to vouch for your character in court to the soundness of who you are as a person, Clergy was who you would call. Your bishop, your priest, your pastor, that's who you would call as a character witness to testify as to what kind of an individual you are. Today, that has been outsourced. And if someone needs to vouch for what kind of a person is Hyde, they're going to bring in a psychiatrist. He's going to administer or she's going to administer a battery of tests and evaluations to try to determine what the heck is going on in my noggin. And then... Explain to the state, this is what I think based on my research, what Mr. Hyde is all about. I don't know, maybe it's a better way, but something in my gut says no, no, really it's not. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. By the way, my lines are open. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to take advantage of the closing moments of this segment. So I've got a couple of great uh, links in the show notes for this hour. Uh, You'll definitely want to check out James Bovard's tribute to Dr. Thomas Saz. I mean, it's it's just no disrespect to people who work within the mental health profession. But let's face it, it can also be a source for great mischief as well. And it wasn't that long ago that, uh, that uh, a new diagnosis came out uh, in the, uh, what is it, the DSM-5? Is that what they are now? The, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual? And it was for uh, Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Something which uh, apparently you were seeing in, in some pretty big numbers today. People uh, protesting, it is time to reopen our lives for business. Particularly in Lansing, Michigan. Holy cow. Hundreds and hundreds of cars surrounding the state capitol parking, creating gridlock, honking their horns. I was watching the the poor guy streaming live video I think it was for Breitbart and just walking around trying to describe what was going on You could could barely understand a word he was saying because so many horns were sounding all at once I don't think Joshua at the Battle of Jericho could have done a better job although at last glance the uh, state house in Lansing, Michigan was still standing so they may need to circle it still a few times before they blow those horns once again all right, I got just th- this one just landed in my email inbox a little earlier this afternoon, and the title pulled me in. How Rights Destroy Us. I know, I did a double take too. What? This is from Paul Rosenberg. And the, Paul is one of those guys who, I I like his take on stuff. He's got a pretty fresh way of looking at things, but I've always been led to believe, hey, our rights are what protect us from government power. They're what limit government's power over us. So he pulled me in. It was a great atomic headline, I had to, to read more and say, what, what is he talking about here? Here's what he said. He says, the thought that something like the right to a secure retirement could destroy us seems a little crazy at first. Who after all opposes old people living comfortably? Nonetheless, he said, many rights do destroy. And he said, it recently struck me that I had never seen a clear and dispassionate explanation of why. So he says, I'm going to rectify that. The two rights. Now, he says this will be brief, so please follow me. When we say rights, we are making should statements. Like old people should spend their final years comfortably. Now, at first that sounds okay, but right is even stronger than should and implies a demand. It's a must, an imperative. And that can be problematic because there are two types of these must statements. One, you must do something Two, you must not do something. Must not statements are like those in the U.S. Bill of Rights. They're what we would call negative rights. In other words, they're saying you shall not. Telling the government that it may not impinge upon free speech, the practice of religion, peaceful assembly, and so on. Congress shall make no law. Now, these statements usually aren't a problem. But the must statements, the positive ones, however, are a problem because they make a universal demand. So when you say we have a right to a secure retirement, you are also saying that someone somewhere must make it happen. Now, think about what he's saying here. Demands that a right be satisfied are made to unspecified providers. Thus, they accrue to gods and rulers And with God's no longer in style, they go directly to rulers who are expected to satisfy the demands. So to secure retirement, uh, to make secure retirement happen, the rulers must provide goods and or money to old people. And those things have to come from somewhere. Roof repairs and microwave ovens don't come from magic incantations. After all, someone must work to provide them. So since the rulers won't personally work for the goods he or she must take them from other people. Thus, the seemingly benevolent right to a secure retirement leads directly to the forcible taking of personal property and the labor that produced it. Now, that's not seriously arguable. But there's some damage and destruction that comes along with that. As Paul Rosenberg points out, as every adult knows, claims of rights are more or less endless these days the right to a roof over our heads, the right to health care, the right to employment, the right to clean water, and so on. All of these things are being demanded. That's what a claim to a right is. It's a demand. So whether people admit it or not, whether they understand it or not, to claim such a right is equally to demand that other people give it to you. In actual practice, he says it's Working people who are expected to pay for all these demands. Money is coercively taken by threat or worse from the electrician, the farmer, the nurse, and so on. Expressed in any honest vocabulary, this is damage, and enough damage qualifies as destruction. So he says clearly the obligation to satisfy all the claims of the modern era is impossible. Everyone from the indigent to the crossdresser are claiming new rights, while the electrician, the farmer and the nurse are being drained beyond endurance. So making things worse, if a right, a must statement isn't satisfied, people take it as evidence of a crime, a wicked violation of their rights. Now, he says, in the end, all these universal demands, all these must statements come crashing down on the working man and woman not only dragging money out of them, but calling them criminals for not having provided the impossible. And so he says, yes, these rights are destroying us. And I hope I've made that clear. We only have a few minutes left, but man, if you'd like to respond, I'd love to get your take. 801-331-8113. See, I think what he's getting at here, if I'm understanding this correctly, and it's possible maybe I'm missing the boat here, If you're going to claim your rights, you better understand what a right is. And this is just leaning on my own understanding here, but my understanding is a right is something that is yours that imposes no burden or obligation on another person in order for you to exercise it. Somebody doesn't have to pay to to write your thoughts so that you can express your right to free speech. It's on you to exercise it. The right to contract freely with other individuals, voluntarily, to engage in commerce. You don't force them to engage in commerce with you. Well, unless you want them to bake your wedding cake. (laughs) But that's another story. Do you see the difference? A lot of what people are calling rights are really just a shrinking circle of things that we're still allowed to do for ourselves while our obligations to government are increased and increased. And, and, and that's the difference. If, if it's something that increases your obligations to government, it's not a right. You can call it whatever else you want to call it, a duty, a privilege, a, an obligation. Rights are what limit government power, what protects you from government power, as well as protect you from anybody else in or out of government infringing upon you. Now, I can almost predict with 100% certainty someone is going, well, that sounds Selfish. That sounds like a very selfish way to live your life. How, how could we do that? We have to cooperate. And you know what? I wouldn't disagree. We do need to cooperate. We are cooperative beings, and voluntary cooperation is the way to go. But did you notice I said the word voluntary as opposed to coercive cooperation? Well, Brian, what if somebody makes the wrong decision? What if somebody refuses to cooperate? What if they don't want to donate their money to help the poor? And I know this probably isn't the answer they want to hear, but it's whose money was it? Their money. Yeah, well, exactly. There's the the answer as well as the problem for you. It's their money. Let them choose to do with it as they will. Well, now we all have to pay our fair share, do we? I mean, my, my grasp of history is a little tenuous here. But as I recall, up until 1913, most every American kept whatever they earned and decided what to do with that money. Yes, there were some taxes they might pay, excise taxes, maybe a poll tax here and there, consumption taxes. Okay, fair enough. But they didn't pay an income tax, which means they alone made the decision what to do with their money and where it would go. Now, I ask you, prior to 1913, prior to the 16th Amendment, were hospitals built, libraries, soup kitchens, museums, Art galleries, bridges, roads, dams. You get the picture. And the answer is, of course they were. So obviously people were able to make the right decision without a gun being stuck in their ribs and told, do this or else. What makes you think they wouldn't do it today? And for those people who want to keep their money, you know, the Scrooge McDucks, if it's their money, that's their prerogative. Let them make the choice. I'm confident enough people would make the right choice voluntarily to provide the solutions needed for a given problem. Thanks for joining us. This is Loving Liberty.